Welcome to episode eight of the In the Name of Service podcast. Today's interview is with John Dodson. John is the CEO of Pivot Project Development, a company whose purpose is to develop beautiful projects that promote human flourishing, create shared value for their stakeholders, and have an enduring impact on their communities. I had the great opportunity to grow up with John in Stillwater, Oklahoma. From the time I met him in sixth grade, he has stood out for being radically kind, thoughtful, brave, and generous. As a young man, he set an example of loving the unloved and standing up for the underdog. The work he's doing today may be more complex, yet it speaks of similar characteristics as evidenced by his company's values of empathy, resilience, excellence, thoughtfulness, and my personal favorite, joyful disruption. In today's conversation, John takes us through his own story, highlighting some of the pain he has experienced and how those experiences have impacted how he shows up today. Too often, we see examples of individual discomfort, pain, and tragedy, leading to a self-focused perspective in life, looking out for number one, as they say, putting up walls and keeping others out. This is not the story you'll hear today. John's life is an example of being grateful for every experience and believing that they are producing in you the capacity to serve others in a unique way. His story is proof that you can serve others by creating relationships outside of your comfort zone and allowing them to help you increase in wisdom, no matter your background, skills, or profession. I hope this conversation helps you reflect on your own experiences to this point and how they have been used to mold you into a powerful tool for good works. For more information on Pivot Project Development, East Point, Restore OKC, or Urban Land Institute, check out the show notes. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the In the Name of Service podcast, John. Walk us through your story thus far. Tell us how you got to be at the place you are in life today. And I know that's a big question. Well, that is a very big question, but thank you so much for letting me be on. And uh, it's funny, we uh, I don't think we've seen each other in, in uh, over 20 years, but it's fun to be on the podcast and I appreciate you uh, you asking me to, to be on here. So um, the where I'm at today is probably, there's a lot of different ways to answer, but professionally, I think the easiest way, I, uh, I went to Oklahoma State University, graduated um, in 2003, uh, 2004, and uh, moved to Oklahoma City and was in banking and kind of got out of banking and then got back into banking and really spent my mid-20s to mid-30s in the the banking industry, lending money. And it was in 2007 that I got involved with a group called Urban Land Institute. And that was the first time I started learning about kind of this idea that there's this, this lady, uh, she's a Catholic and mystery writer, and she said that we're most godlike when we create order out of chaos. And so as I was 
in the banking world, and I started finding ways that people could develop within communities and make a difference. It was like the first time probably my professional career made sense. It was like, oh, okay, like I can actually be a part of this. I'm not doing it. I'm just kind of facilitating the the, the money. But I got really involved with um, kind of urban infill development as a as a banker, and so I did that. And uh, it was probably it was 2013 when I kind of made a move to what I thought would be my final job as a banker where I would retire. And they had asked me to come on and help with their uh, lending department and and really kind of drive the, the real estate side of it. And three months in, I knew I had made a mistake, but my boss walked in one day and, and to my assistant, he said, uh, I was in the other room, I could hear everything. He said, if you want to keep your job, you need to have sex with me, get it on the calendar. And so that was one of those... Um, moments. And so uh, the the way that he had handled really the culture was terrible, but that was kind of the breaking point. And so in the process of me um, reporting what he had said, the, the bank chose not to fire him. And they were, uh, I would say they were less than gracious with my assistant. Yeah. And so um, I put my two-week notice in and quit. And so I was 30 four at the time and uh, 33 at the time and I we had four kids and so I sold my car I moved my office obviously because I wasn't at the bank anymore and I started officing out of a coffee shop and so I had business cards that were made with the coffee shop address on it and whenever I could close a deal or help someone close a deal they would bring the check to the, the barista at the at the coffee shop and so I really spent two years and it was at the coffee shop that I think most of my kind of growth happened when you're in lending um, you're really around the same type of individual and it's not bad but um, you know I was around 55 to 75 year old uh, primarily white successful men who um, you know had been professionally successful and uh, I was going to a coffee shop that um, was probably the most diverse coffee shop in town uh, whether it was the LGBTQ community or whether it was um, just people who were socioeconomically different than me or racially different than me and so uh you know, there's this this theory sometimes I think we want to believe that wisdom is just understanding or knowing more. But I think that um, wisdom is when you can figure out how to combine or marry uh, knowledge with relationships. And so I'm always okay if someone has a different belief than me. Uh, what I think is always interesting, if you have that belief, as long as it is you have relationships with people who don't agree with you, it allows you to really kind of think through, is this a belief that matters or not? And so it was during that time that I just started getting exposed to a lot of stuff and started realizing that no matter what I did, I wanted it, I, I wanted to be in a world that was different from the world uh, that I had spent the previous 10 years. So I was, uh, I, I essentially then went, um, my buddy, who is a partner of mine, where I lent money to whenever I was a banker, he went to my 34th birthday and he disappeared in the middle of the birthday. And I thought he left. I was kind of, you know, pissed at him. And uh, 
he comes back and he says, hey, I need to talk to you. And so me and one other friend of mine, he, he said, hey, I just got the Tower Theater under contract and I would like to uh, do this together. Would you partner with me on that? And so, I mean, at that point, I was riding my bike. I was really would have taken, he could ask me to be a barista and I would have said yes. So the idea of like being a equal partner in a development uh, felt um, and was incredibly generous. And so it's really out of that partnership that Pivot Project was started. Now we're going to talk a lot more about Pivot Project development, but before that, for as long as I've known you, you've always stood out as being radically kind. Where do you think that comes from? Um, well, I appreciate you saying that. And I, I don't know, uh, you know, my sister says that I do have some assness to me. So, uh, you know, I, I do think that one of the things that I had a process in my own story is the, just the idea of, you know, being a young kid and being, uh, but you can't see me, but you know, Dotson's really get one growth spurt in life. And so, uh, when we do, we got to hold on to it. And so, um, you know, I experienced some things that you, as a, as a little kid in public schools, whether, you know, people beating you up or threatening to do that or whatever, that at the time felt really unfair. You know, there were things that you, you wish you could grow and fight back or whatever. But what it did do is it allowed me to walk into a room and to um, understand people and to see where they were coming from and in some ways to see if they were a threat, but in other ways to see other people who may be vulnerable or who uh, were struggling. And so I think it bore an empathy. Um, I'm grateful for that, that uh, allowed me to want to be kind to people, especially people who uh, don't have the same starting place as others. And so um, that empathy at times, you know, you, you, empathy and kindness can lead to uh, either being run over or it can lead to paternalism where you think you can fix everyone's problems. And so I've probably uh, at various times in my life swung one way or the other on that. I think one of the things that we've talked about as a company that's one of our values is as we talk about kindness, instead of kindness being a value, we've called it joyous disruption. And it's this idea of you really can't use shame and guilt to persuade anyone to do something. But uh, in empathy and in, in putting yourself in someone else's shoes, if you're so excited and so joyful about what you're getting to do, that um, that can be a much stronger motivator to bring people along for a good ride. And so, you know, empathy is actually one of our core values at, at Pivot. And, you know, we did that instead of kindness because we wanted to say, you know, People can still associate kindness with, uh, you know, someone's too kind, they get run over or whatever. But empathy, I think, is a really good way to say, hey, we're going to try to put ourselves in other people's shoes because Lord knows all of our lives are hard enough. We all have trauma. We all have uh, experiences that have shaped us for better or worse for who we are. And so trying to understand why people act the way they do, I think, is, is really helpful because I want people to do that with me, you know, whenever I'm uh, in a bad place and, and reacting poorly. I, sh I hope that people give me enough grace to say, why, why is he acting the way that he is? So, Well, now I'm super interested in all of the other values, but before we go there, tell us the history of Pivot Project Development. Yeah, so Pivot, um, we started our, you know, 34th birthday, 
buddy comes in, hands me the contract, and this was, you know, uh, eight and a half years ago. The three of us started Pivot. Really, we had no idea what we were doing. It was a what we were redeveloping was actually an old. It was an old movie theater that had turned into a porn theater that was then just vacant. It was uh, had retail and office, and so we decided to do that. We converted it into a music. It's a thousand cap music venue. Um, there's several restaurants and bars, and we really had fun working together. And I think the reason why we liked working together was we weren't. Um, we really cared about the community, and then we 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 want to make money, but money needs to sit underneath virtues. So um, the idea of just trying to like make money for the sake of making money was not very attractive to any of us. And so uh, it was really over a, a five or six year period that we redeveloped quite a bit of properties on their all historic, mainly historic buildings um, in the urban core. And uh, we developed relationships with tenants that went into the buildings and really had a lot of fun. It was during that time that, uh, and I can kind of, I'll, I'll jump into kind of some stuff we've done on the east side just because I think that's helpful. But it was during that time that there was a fraternity dude from uh, Norman that got caught on a bus singing about um, lynching uh, a black man. And so there was this big reconciliation event in Oklahoma City. And so one of the guys behind me, uh, he was a pastor in town. He stood up and he said, if you want to know what it's like to be in my shoes, when's the last time you had someone like me over for dinner? And so um, I started thinking about it and I, I journal uh, fairly regularly and I have really for the last 20 years, but I would I don't do really journal at night, but that, that night I went home. And it was a really like pathetic plea, but I said, dear God, you know, let me, let me have a black friend. Cause I didn't have any, right. I'd been in banking for so long. All of my friends were um, white and I really didn't know anybody. And so it was over kind of this process of two to three years of really trying to be intentional um, that I had some friends take, you know, kind of take me under their wing. And it's, you know, we forget what it's a burden because every time they meet a white person like me that is trying to understand, you know, What's white privilege like? What's, um, you know, what are these microaggressions that they experience that I don't? What's it like? They, they're almost not only having they have to experience that, but then they have to teach every white person like what it's like. And so the kindness they gave me to basically put me under their wing and, and I gave them, you know, full uh, authority over like, dude, when I say the wrong thing, just call me out. And so there's a lot of things that I would say or ask or didn't understand that they would be like, you can't say that. Do you understand what you mean? You know? And so as that started happening, we realized that, Hey, what if we actually try to develop? Cause we're developers. What if we try to develop on the east side of town and what would that look like if we did that and how could we do it different and so um, we basically created kind of a somewhat incidental but somewhat through processes um, it was how do we do the opposite of what most people do when they go into underserved communities and what is that? Yeah, so so typically what happens is is there is a, a fundamental belief that because someone has access to power or money, they are a blessing to a community. That's paternalistic, but I think it's also wrong. None of us, you know, money is not something we can take with us beyond the grave. 
And so the people who have uh, community and family that have character, that have ingenuity, people that have, you know, friends, um, that good food, like all of these things, but it's like within a community, those are things that I think we all want, right? And a lot of times the, the white or, you know, I say white community, but, but I would say, you know, those in power, we, uh, the, the allure of wealth is that it, um, will remove from you pain or discomfort, right? And so the only way I know how to describe it is it's like if you keep building walls, if you use wealth to build up walls, you really do eliminate anything from ever being able to get in. But that also means that you don't allow joy to get in. And I think joy and suffering are siblings that um, when you when you cancel out one, you typically cancel out the other. And so if you you know even if you talk to like an opioid addict or something, it's it's not that they they were they were taking it to feel good, but what happened was is they they no longer can feel anything right. And so um, wealth has this weird gravitational pull to do that to us. So what we said is if we're going to you know, develop the first thing that we are going to believe is that we will leverage access to power or money to be a part of the community, but we're the ones who will benefit, not them. So um, we're going to be the ones who uh, it is a very selfish endeavor on our part to go develop because we want uh, to grow as humans. And so that was like philosophical driver number one. Um, number two was uh, the the thing that most people don't want to give up is power, and so you know you see that you know if you're if you're using a uh, a church reference, you know it's like a white church that really wants to become integrated and socially aware, and so they hire a black youth pastor. Right. Uh, the problem is the power dynamics never changed, and so what we said is if we're going to partner, if we're going to bring someone into partner, we actually have to give them authority over us. We don't, even though we're the developer and you know we're guaranteeing the debt and we're doing all these things, like we have to trust someone else to have the power over us as a company. And so we brought in he'd, he'd been a friend of mine and uh, a guy named Sandino Thompson, and um, we said, hey, will you will you partner with us? But this is you know this is. You get to speak for the project. You get to veto stuff you don't like. You get to tell us what you think, and we will listen and respond. And, you know, he had been laying the groundwork in his community for, for 15 years for this. So, you know, as we come in and, you know, we're spending two, three, four, five years working on this, this is what he had spent, you know, most of his formative years trying to get to was a development within his community that uh, could spark something. So, I mean, you know, where we went, where we went to develop, there had not been any development in that community for over 35 years. And so a lot of, you know, what people would tell me, well, if, if they haven't had, if they haven't developed in their community for, you know, 35 years, they must not care about it. And, you know, why are you trying to, to force something that, you know, shouldn't be done? I'll get into my what my response would be as I kind of share our story of what happened there. Yeah. So I think for him, it was like, he really wanted, you can't, you have to have someone to start the process, right? And so uh, he wanted to help start it and he wanted to do it with people that he could trust. And so he had been um, used uh, as kind of a, you know, a blackface for several different projects and then not, I would say, respected in the process. And so it was, I think it really was fundamental for him to be a the, the lead because it's his community, right? Like we don't know better than him um, and we still don't. And so uh, he had a lot to teach us. 
So yeah, so for us, you know, as one was saying, we're, we're going to be the benefactors in this project if we go develop. The second was saying we needed to give authority over to someone else. The next was we wanted to, it's called representative retail, but we wanted the spaces to look and feel like they belonged on the east side. The easiest thing for us was to take, you know, 10 really successful on the west side of town and say, hey, why don't you come over here? Rent will be cheaper. You know, you can do your thing over here. But what that really does is it it wouldn't be authentic, right? Like we don't, we didn't need a, a white coffee shop in a primarily black community. Um, we needed to try to bring entrepreneurs back to a space that they could be successful and it was representative of the community. So what we did was we actually paid the community to to tenant their own building. And so what that really looked like was if if you know you had a tenant that you knew was successful and was interested in opening up in our space and they signed a lease, instead of paying a broker, we paid the community. So we cut you a consulting check and said thank you. And so we got to cut some big checks um, to people because they helped us. Right. And so part of it was trying to say, we don't know, we don't know what works best here. Um, but we're willing to pay the community to help us find the best tenants. The next thing we did was we said, you know, when you look at gentrification and hopefully this isn't like too abstract, but like we're all, the whole country is talking about, displacement and gentrification and I think gentrification can be a good thing and a bad thing but when you're in underserved communities it can lead to displacement and displacement's really crazy because it's 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 if you've pulled away financing and um, you've pulled away all of these things from a community the community itself becomes insulated to they, they protect each other right so like the person down the street's the one who helps watch your kid when you're away 98% of the household or it may not be that high it's over 90% of the households in this area are, are single parent households and so you know they're, they're really the community is the thing that helps provide and so if property values increase and so someone's forced to move they don't move you know they can't just move down the street they have to move out of the community and usually that means to the suburbs and so if they're moving to the suburbs now they're totally auto-dependent they're outside of all of their comfort and they have to drive farther to their job and so um displacement is like really scary and it should be within that community and so for us what we were trying to figure out is how do we not displace our tenants because that's, you know, you go to an area in any small town or any big town in America, and usually it starts with the artists and the coffee shops and the tattoo parlors, and it gets successful. And then the landlord's like, I can make more money if I kick those tenants out and bring in someone, you know, like a whatever tenant, right? Um, and so all of the creatives who brought the, the value and the energy to that building are now kicked out. They got to go somewhere else. Well, we were scared that we might get greedy in five years, 10 years and kick out our tenants from the building because we could go get rent more, we could get more rent from someone else. And so what we did was we, we told our tenants that if you sign a lease, you become a part owner in the real estate. And so we allocated 15% ownership for all of our tenants. And so what that did was that made them owners in the property and now our partners and not just a landlord tenant relationship. So that was like fundamental for us in terms of saying, how do we, how do we not displace these people? Well, you make them partners, so you can't displace them. 
And then we, we negotiated a bunch of money with the city, and we, instead of using that to protect our own investment, we passed that on to the tenants. So the tenants got like six times the amount of money that they would typically get on the west side of town, and they got a 30% reduction in rent. And then the final thing we said was we will, uh, we will use this as a launch point to teach other people how to develop. And so there's a whole nonprofit that got started out of this project through Sandino, um, and they are they're using... Uh, they have a real estate school now. They're training up people to, to do this. And so on our next project we have across the street, we're actually taking some of the folks who got interested in development and then paying them to learn how to develop as we develop the next project. That's kind of the whole thing on East Point. And, you know, it's it's been interesting. Um, it's obviously the hardest project we've ever done. It's still... Um, it's still a struggle for all of our tenants because, you know, they're the first, it's the first black coffee shop in the neighborhood, right? It's the first uh, black owned pizza place that's new in the neighborhood. And so you're, and, and there's been so much financial, financial devastation to that community through redlining and, you know, 80% of middle-class wealth is derived through home ownership. And we, you know, prevented on purpose the African-American and black community from being able to own homes. And so when you do that for three generations, the, the, the lack of middle-class wealth is not due to anything other than we kept them from being able to do. You know, my parents, the only wealth they have is the equity in their home. That's all they got. And so, uh, and that gives, that's given them a lot of financial freedom over the years, whereas that just doesn't exist over there. So uh, there's still a lot of work to do, but yeah, that's been a really important project and it's been really helpful for us to become, I think, a different type of development company out of that. So what for you so far has been the most rewarding on your journey of developing differently? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, we would say, yeah, there's that quote that rising tide lifts all boats, but, you know, we've said a rising tide flood all floods, all the boats that have holes in it. And so, um, as we look at, there's this theory that if we just keep pumping money into downtown, everybody else is going to win. But really a lot of times it just creates greater disparity between the haves and the have, you know, have nots. And so I think for us, the, when, like, what have we, what has been most rewarding is it's actually learning to see the world a little differently. Um, if you talk to someone who's anemic and they don't know they're anemic and they're, you know, like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, but I'm kind of tired. I get up at 10 a.m. and I go to sleep at 6 p.m. I still have any, you know, real uh, energy. But then they get iron in their body for the first time. And they're like, oh my God, I feel so great, right? To see the world differently, to be around folks who experience different um, things, but also have different forms of, of having joy. I think for our company, it's made us totally different. And so uh, you just see the world in a more robust way. Uh, it's like getting a new pair of like eyeglasses and going, oh my God, I never knew the world was this wonderful. And so those relationships are by far uh, the most rewarding thing that, that we've gotten out of this deal. What have been the most difficult hurdles to jump over in this area of service so far? Yeah. So, you know, for East Point in particular, um, I just didn't realize how difficult it was for uh, people to get, be able to, to get money to their community. And so like when we, um, when we chose to do the development phase one, we had a healthcare clinic that was going to take 60% of this, this asset. 
and they were going to basically service all the debt. And so I started calling banks because I was like, this is going to be the easiest project we've ever done. Like we've got a, we've got an anchor, we got a healthcare clinic that's, they're, they're, they're a hundred years old. They're moving their headquarters to this side of town because they believe in this mission. Like who wouldn't want to be a part of, of phase one, right? And I called over 25 banks and I couldn't get a term sheet. And uh, some of the banks were honest. They said, well, we don't lend money to that side of town. And some banks said, well, if, if there hasn't been any development in 35 years, like I don't know uh, why would I be the one to take that risk? And and so there was a moment in time where we had a bank finally say, okay, if you bring in someone richer than you guys and they guarantee the debt and you give them ownership in the real estate, then we'll do the deal. And so I had a buddy who, um, he's a really wonderful guy and he's got the largest single malt scotch collection in the country. And so, um, he had more single malt scotch than we had, we needed in debt on this project. So I call him, I tell him what we're trying to do. He's like, I'm in man. I, 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 I'll support you guys. So we go to the back to the bank and we say, okay, this is the guy he's going to do it. And they called me and they said, he's not rich enough. And so at that point it was like the weight of, um, you know, what we, what we, where I wanted to go was I wanted to call out bankers by name and call them all racist. Right. And be like, you know, but really what happens is, is like in the fifties and sixties when, um, banks really were, were discriminatory in nature, right? Like if you were, if you were black and you came to me and you said, Hey, Dotson, I need a loan. I would just say, Hey, you're black. You're not going to get my money. Right. And I would say that in the seventies and the eighties, but in the nineties, things started to change in 2000s. But what happened was because we started that process 60, 70 years ago, in the, in the 2020s, people are saying like, hey, I really, I really care about the black community, but no one's lent any money over there for 50 or 60 years. The system itself is what became the problem, right? It's, it's not just like bankers are bad people. It's like the, the banking system had become the problem. And so the only way that we knew to, to really address that was to say it was through joyous disruption. Cause I, I did try the shame route for a little bit and it didn't work. Uh, and it was like, yeah, I can't shame people into lending us money, but we can start talking about how great, you know, this development is, how great the people are, who would want to be a part of this. And so I actually called um, a female owned uh, bank in uh, Edmond, which is a suburb, and basically just laid everything out. I said, we're going to lose everything if we don't find a loan for this. And she was the one to go to bat for us and to get us the money to to close. And so that didn't fix the problems. Like we had, uh, we had over 40 LOIs, which are called letters of intent to move into our retail spaces. But these people, they only needed like $25,000. They've been successful. They had businesses in other sides of town. They wanted to move back to the black, you know, the black side, which is where they were, they grew up or whatever. And they could, they could get money on the West side of town for their business. But when they came back, they couldn't get money for the East side or they couldn't get money for their, the East side project. And so we only had 11 spaces and we had over 40 letters of intent signed, but these people couldn't get that little bit of money to help. Right. And so there's still this like massive capital disconnect in our country, which makes it really difficult if you're a person of color to, uh, and, and I would say female owned businesses as well, like our retail development, which is 20,000 square feet. It's 90% minority owned businesses and 50% of those are females. And so it was, it's been really difficult for them to get the money they need where, where on the West side of town, it's just a lot easier. We bought the tower theater. I had never developed before. 
I had no idea what I was doing. I had no money. We got, we had, and we had no tenants for the entire building. And we got a bank to say yes. You move two miles to the east, and we have a 100-year-old healthcare clinic that signed a 10-year lease, and we've gotten the city to invest in it, and I can't get a bank to say yes. And so, you know, it's one of these things where you start saying one of these things is not like the other. And um, it's sad, but it is true. And so we, we become very passionate of saying, you know, a Pivot is a for-profit. But what we've said is we're, we need nonprofits on the east side. We need nonprofits striving and providing value. But we also have to create an economic engine that has not existed before. So it's like you're trying to kickstart something because it's been so devastated through redlining and everything else. And so um, it's a, it's a, you, you're not going to fix 50, 60 years of this with one project. Right. And so it's going to take time and it's going to take more. So. Well, John, early in our conversation, you spoke about leaving um, the comfort of a predictable job, selling your car, working out of a coffee shop. Practically speaking, what has sacrifice looked like for you and your family as you've gone on this endeavor? Um, I guess the first thing would be to say is some people are like really brave and they choose to um, enter into this world. They say, hey, I want to give my life to service or I want to, you know, I'm choosing to sacrifice for others. If I'm being honest, I was not that brave. I needed a uh, horrific thing to happen to one of my coworkers. And for me to um, be really forced out of banking to get me to say, okay, now I have to survive, right? I got to pay bills. I went four kids. And so it's like, those are the things when, when I was liquidating all of our savings accounts and everything to, you know, cover bills and all of that. Um, I think it was something that I would not have chosen. And so, um, in, in kind of some weird way, you know, you, I'm appreciative that I was forced to make a decision and that I chose to, to quit my job, then lean into this. But I mean, really, you know, what does that translate to today? It's like one, you know, the, the sacrifice was, a lot of long hours, you know, I mean, banking is pretty great. You can kind of shut it down, right? Um, you, uh, there, I was, I had times where I was stressed or worried, but in, in the big picture, life was, was pretty simple and easy. And so, uh, this is way more complicated and much more, you know, our, our tenants are our friends and, you know, our bankers are our friends and people who invest with us are friends. And so life gets very um, connected. And so that was weird, I think, for for Katie and for the kids and all of those things. But at the same time, it's just been really rewarding. So um, I don't feel like I feel like the sacrifices that have been made were were well worth it. And the idea of having to go back and, you know, work for a bank or do something like that would like makes my stomach hurt. Right. You know, it's like, I don't want to go back and do that. Uh, I really love what I get to do. And I'm really grateful that I have an opportunity to do with the people that we have. And so we've got a team that is uh, really great and that is collectively bought into this idea that, um, we can do things differently with a long-term view in mind and, and do it for the community and still be financially successful and uh, help maybe change the culture. And so, you know, we've been intentional at Pivot with, we, we uh, really were mostly female company, 
um, because there's been so few developers that are female in Oklahoma City. And so uh, instead of like banging a stick and telling everyone they need to hire females, it's like, well, why don't we just really focus on hiring females? And so one of my partners is um, a lady named Candace Bates. And, you know, I've watched her, you know, I've, I've had friends come up and before I could tell them who she was and what she did, they would be like, oh, I've got someone just like her in my office. Right. And uh, the assumption that because she's a female, she's, you know, an admin assistant or whatever. And so each one of the females in our team, you know, have had to overcome um, so much more than than I have, right? Um, as much as I had to, you know, we had to kickstart. I'm still a, a white dude who has a lot of access and privilege that I don't deserve, um, but I still get it. And so us being able to change how development is viewed, um, even within Oklahoma City, is, has been really fun because we're getting to disrupt the system by hiring really qualified females and, and you know, changing the narrative. And like the females on our team are really awesome and they're really, really good at what they do. And so uh, I think those are things that you're like, man, had we not been on this journey, had we not seen and experienced the things that we did, we wouldn't be looking at trying to build a company the way that we are. Definitely. Well, let's say there's someone near you in Oklahoma City or nearby, and they'd like to contribute to this effort. What does that look like? What other resources do you need to stand alongside you? Could you speak to that practically for a moment? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because my uh, sister-in-law, she formed a, uh, or she, she started something in Oklahoma City called Restore OKC. And uh, what they did was they, they moved back from St. Louis, my brother and sister-in-law did, and they were working for Restore St. Louis and started Restore OKC. But basically what Restore OKC did was it, it, it just started building relationships. They started going to the library which was essentially the community center and hanging out with families, asking them what they needed. And out of that, um, there is, they have a workforce housing program for females who uh, were incarcerated, who were trying to get back on their feet. They have a, um, a massive greenhouse where the kids, the high school students who work there get a free ride to either OSU or Langston. They have, um, they started um, during the, one of the grocery stores on the east side, the only grocery store on the east side got torn down by a developer and without any notice to the community. And within six months, this restore group had opened up a nonprofit grocery store that had food that was being any grocery store, but they had fundraised to basically sell it at a lower cost for the community. And so, you know, they have, they're fixing up houses. And so like what we, when we see them, we can't do the things that they're doing. Um, and their world is different, right? They're working with, when I talk to them, what their days are like, it's like they're working with maybe a 70 year old who uh, can't fix the roof on their house. And so they're going in and doing that, right? My world is very much baked into like, I'm trying to connect with entrepreneurs who, uh, which means they're like the 20 to 40 year olds that are trying to figure out, hey, I love this side of town. I had to leave to go be successful. How could I come back and do something different? And so you have to have both. You can't have, you know, if you just had a pivot, I think you would create gentrification so quickly that the community would lose its soul, you know, because it would get displaced. Whereas um, you have to, but you at the same time, you have to have like economic growth, right? You have to have economic viability. You have to have the ability to make money. Um, and that's been one of the things that we feel like we can help with. How might you advise someone going or moving in the same or similar direction as you possibly in a different community 
knowing what you know now? Um, I really think the idea of building relationships, you know, I've had friends tell me like, man, like, I love what you've done, but um, I don't really know how my skill set would parlay into that. And I don't think, you know, if you would have asked me seven years ago, what would my skill set parlay to into the east side? I would tell you, I have no idea. It was actually driving around on the east side with my friends who are black and then talking about what their dreams were. And, and at some point it clicking and going like, oh, hey, I think we could actually like be a part of this, right? Like I actually have some things that I do that might actually parlay into what you want to see happen. And maybe we could do that together. And so I, I do think relationships are, and, you know, our country is in a weird state, right? Right now, politically with all of the divisiveness that's occurred and um, on both sides. And we've all surrounded ourselves in echo chambers where everyone else is an idiot. And I think there's something to be said about holding as much as we can into this idea of holding relationships with people who don't agree with us. Because, um, I mean, I have believed a lot of things over my 42 years. And I've changed political uh, perspectives. I've changed, you know, religious perspectives. I've changed a lot of, of um, and none of us are static right? We're all dynamic and changing. And so I do think relationships are really for anyone who's trying to do something. It's like, go spend time. I mean, just don't, and don't like, you don't even need to have grandiose uh, plans. I think if you build relationships, you'll see where your skill sets can, can lean into something in it, you know, whether it's facilitating a line of credit for someone who's trying to start a business to, you know, helping someone with a business plan to working at a nonprofit and, you know, serving there to developing. I mean, all of those things are, are needed, but I think they're needed for the person doing it. Like, again, yeah. you become a better person when you're a part of that. So tell us this, what would you suggest for the person who has a heart similar to yours, maybe a heart for a specific community, but they see what you've done over the last eight and a half years with your team and it just looks too big. What would you suggest or how would you suggest that they get started? Well, uh, you know, one thing would be to say that there there are people making massive impacts in communities across America. And, you know, my specific field is development, right? And so uh, real estate development. And so that was the most natural um, place for me to, to lean in on. Um, but there are so many things that are needed. Um, again, like start with a relationship and then at some point I find that people either decide to jump in. You, you don't, you do not get to wade in to these kind of issues. It's not like, Hey, I'm going to wait till, you know, let me get knee deep and then decide. Yeah, that's that never, that never works. Right. And I've watched a lot of people who are really talented who care, try to, you know, they spend, I, I watched someone spend a year and a half dipping their toes in and then they just realized it was too complicated and they, you know, they, they said, I just can't do it. Right. I'm not faulting that person, but I think what I have found is if you're not willing to jump in, um, and, and join in and commit, it's just too difficult. There, there are so many headwinds that no matter what you try to do in an underserved community, there's so many headwinds there that if you're a suit, you're going to wait till the wind turns your direction, you're never going to do it. And so, um, you at some at some core level, you have to believe that you need it as a human, and your need for that is greater than the obstacles that you are going to uh, face. Yeah, and it's crazy. Like along the way, like one of one of my favorite stories was 
um, JB, who is a, uh, uh, he's a social developer, a community developer, he's a rapper, he's uh, really talented in so many different ways. He's also an entrepreneur, he owns a pizza place um, in town, but he called me one day and he's like, hey, I need you to, I need you to come over to East Point, which is our project on the east side. And so I drove over there and I was like, what's up? And he's like, oh, we just need to go for a walk. And so we walk over to this building and it's this nondescript building and it just says Barber on it. And so we walk in and uh, it's three three dudes playing NBA 2K and then uh, a guy uh, getting his hair cut and then the barber who's probably like six foot four, no body fat on him. And he's got one picture on the wall. It's a picture of JB, my friend. And so, like, JB starts talking to him, and they're chatting. And so then this guy starts grilling me. I have no idea who he is. I have no idea what's going on. But he starts asking me what I'm trying to develop next to him, what I what I think about the community, what I'm wanting to provide to the community, why I would even do this here. And at the very end, he goes, okay, you're cool, man. You're good. And I leave, and I tell JB, I'm like, what the hell just happened, man? I have no idea what we just walked into. And he's like, well... He's the mailman and he's he's made. And I'm like, he's made? What do you mean? Uh, you know, I'm still very much trying to learn this at this point. He's like, oh, he's the OG. I'm like, okay, I like original gangster. What does that mean? And he's like, well, he was in a gang in LA. He moved here and um, he's basically, I took you to him so that he would protect your property and make sure that nothing happened to it. And it was at that point that I realized JB had gone and sacrificed for me in a way that he, he knew he couldn't tell me beforehand what he was asking me to do. But at the same time, had I messed that up, all of JB's reputational, like that would, that would totally damage his reputation. And so as you start seeing the way that people are willing to um, be kind to you in a way that you don't deserve, I left there so humbled. I was like, I can't believe he just did that for me when he didn't have to. I never would have known. I never would have like gone into that barber shop, right? And been like, this is the guy I need to know. But not only did he connect me, he stood by my side to make sure that that thing was taken care of. And so um, those are the kind of things that shape who you become when you choose to just jump in. I love that. Well, let's wrap it up there, John. I just want to say thank you for your time today and also thank you for everything you're doing in your community. Thank you so much.